is not getting better, it's degenerating. Your mind, your will, and emotions doesn't progressively get cleaner, they get worse. A dirty old man gets dirtier. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of chapter 5 of the book of Romans, we've spent some time looking at the doctrine of election. We have particularly been trying to answer the question, when Jesus gave himself up as a sacrifice, did he do so for the whole world or just a particular and select group of people? The idea that only a certain elect group have been pre-chosen to be saved is held by a group of believers who ascribe to a reformed or Calvinistic theology. As we rejoin Dr. Brogy, he runs through some scripture that affirms that Jesus died for whoever believes in him, not just the elect. The Bible says that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Now, how would the hyper-Calvinists translate or understand this verse? Oh, the whole world of the elect. He's not talking about the elect in this context. A few verses later, he'll say, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. He's not talking about the world of the elect. He's talking about an ungodly world, an ungodly world for whom Christ died. If this was the only verse I had in all the Scripture, I would believe in an unlimited atonement. Jot down this verse, 2 Peter 2, verse 1. He's describing false teachers, apostates, whom he tells us in that chapter their end is eternal destruction. But of these people, but false prophets, he warns, also arose among the people in the Old Testament, just as there will be false teachers among you in this age, who will do what? Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. The master who bought them, Jesus with his precious blood died even for these false prophets, these false teachers who bring into the church destructive heresies. That does not sound like a limited atonement to me. The most quoted, most memorized verse in the Bible in John 3, 16, John records, for God so loved the elect. I guess he didn't say that, did he? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if the elect would believe in him. No, he said it as plain and as clear as he could say it. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I believe Jesus died for everyone. Jot down this for 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient for you, with you not wishing for any to perish, but for all, pass. And in every other verse in all the Bible, the word pass, when it says all, means all, and no one debates that. But we want to debate it here. He doesn't mean all, to come, all kinds of men, they would say, to come to repentance, but not all men. And so it's reasoned. It's not God's will, as you unlimited redemptionists say, from 2 Peter 3, 9, for anyone to perish and go to hell. But the fact is that men go to hell. And that would make God less than sovereign because God's will is not accomplished. Don't get the idea that because God is sovereign that God's will is always done. 
I hope you don't think that rape and sodomy and adultery and fornication and drunkenness is part of God's will because it's not. God is not willing that men perish, but God created man with a free will, and because of that, people perish. Now, the hyper-Calvinist would say, well, if you say that Jesus' death is for all, and all men don't get saved, then it means that his death is less than effectual, and it means that God really is not sovereign. Now, listen, your pastor believes in a sovereign God. I don't believe there's a blade of grass that can move apart from God's sovereignty. There's not a bird that falls to the ground apart from God's notice. He knows every star in the sky. He's called each and every one of them by name. And so God in his sovereignty, who allowed his son to die for all men, also in his sovereignty has given man a free will to choose. And the fact that not all look to the merits of Christ's shed blood does not make God any less sovereign and does not mean that his blood is wasted. Because the Bible teaches that not only is the death of Christ, not only is your sin a reason for condemnation, your unbelief in what God did through His Son is a reason for condemnation. Listen to this verse in John 3 and verse 18. He who believes in Him, speaking of the Lord Jesus, God's Son, whom He just spoke of in John 3, 16, he who believes in Him is not judged, he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so when Jesus Christ eternally condemns a man, he eternally condemns him not simply because he's a sinner, but he also condemns him for his unbelief. No one at the judgment bar will be able to say, yes, God, all men deserve condemnation. You would be just if you had done nothing and sent everyone to hell. But the fact is, God, you're unjust because while all men deserve condemnation, not all men had an equal chance because there was no way of escape for me because Jesus didn't die for me. No one will be able to say that. Because the same blood that can save me will be the same blood that will condemn other people. Jot down this verse, John 1, verse 29. John the Baptist said this of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the elect. That's not what he said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the sin of the world. The point I am trying to make is that I reject the doctrine that Jesus died just for some. Now, in addition, it would make this analogy here in Romans 5.15 meaningless. Look again at the verse. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and, and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The contrast is very, very clear. Now, I've just cracked the door on this, but don't get lost in this theology. I know this is some heavy stuff, but we're talking about the contrast between Adam and Christ in their motive and in their effect. And so in the contrast in the effect, look now at verse 16. He said, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. Underline in your Bibles that word condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Underline that word justification. For if by the transgression of the one death, underline that word death, death reigns through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Underscore that word life. In life through the one Jesus Christ. Four words. 
contrasting the results between Adam's deed and Christ's decision. I have them again underlined. Condemnation, justification, death, and life. And so Adam's sin brought condemnation while Christ's work brought justification. Adam's sin brought the reign of death while Christ's work brought the reign of life. And to really appreciate the difference between the work of Adam, condemnation, death, and the work of Christ, justification, and life, we have to understand these two words, life and death. Paul's going to expand on these concepts in great detail when we come to Romans 6 to 8. And I don't want you to miss a single sermon. It's going to be so important when we come to that section. But let me just crack the door for a moment. What happened to Adam in the Garden of Eden when he sinned? Well, again, when God made Adam, he said, let us, not let me. In kernel form, it's a, the doctrine of the Trinity is found even in the first chapter of the Bible. It's a Hebrew pronoun that speaks of the triunity of God. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. The Bible says that God is Father, God is Son, God is Spirit. Likewise, Adam is body, soul, and spirit. He's made in a triune way because he's made in the image of God. Listen to what Paul said when he prays for the church at Thessalonica, and by extension for us. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man is a triune being made in the image of the triune God. Adam with his spirit was able to worship God and to know God. Man's spirit is like a transmitter. It's like a receiver. It's what gives him the capacity to worship and to know the Lord. And so Jesus says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. When we come to Romans 8, he will say that when we're saved, the Spirit himself will bear witness with our spirit that we've become children of God. He's already said in this fifth chapter that the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts through Christ who loved us. So there's the spirit of man, but there's also the soul of man. The word for soul is the Greek word suke. We got our word psychology directly from it. And in a broad sense, and this is where it's a little challenging, sometimes the word soul, remember words get their meaning in context, sometimes it's used to describe the entire immaterial portion of man. And so Jesus says, for instance, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? But in a technical sense, man is described as a tripartite being. Uh, The Word of God is living and active and sharper. Then a two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. If the spirit and the soul were the same, you couldn't divide them. But God says they're divisible. And so in a technical sense, God describes us as having a, a soul, a spirit, and a body. And so the soul of man, when it's used technically, is used to describe the mind, will, and emotions of man. But man also has a body. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5 as your earthly tent. And it's like a tent in a lot of ways. And that with time, a tent weathers and it begins to get holes and it begins to break down. And as you get older, you don't get better, you get weaker. That's just the reality of it all. And so this is our spacesuit. This is how people relate to the immaterial person, the real me that is on the inside. Now, if you can understand what happened to Adam when he sinned, you will appreciate your salvation so much more. God warned in Genesis 2, from any tree you may eat, 
But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you will die. Literally, the Hebrew text reads this way. It's rather wooden, but it's literally what it says. For in the day that you eat from it, dying you shall die. Dying you shall die. It describes a progression in the original. Well, what happened to Adam on that day that he ate? Well, he died initially. He died in his spirit. And so Ephesians 2 describes man as being dead in in our trespasses and sins. Paul describes ungodly women as the walking dead. They are physically alive but spiritually dead. And so the day that Adam sinned, the lights went out. The Scripture says in Proverbs, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the innermost parts of his being. Spiritual darkness came upon Adam, and so he's afraid. He's hiding from God Almighty because dying you shall die. And so he immediately died in his spirit. But then progressively, he began to age. And so we're born aging. We get older and older and older and older and older from the moment of conception. But man also dies in his soul. Man's soul, and we're going to study this when we come to the sixth chapter is not getting better, it's degenerating. Your mind, your will, and emotions doesn't progressively get cleaner, they get worse. A dirty old man gets dirtier. And this is why it's important to be born again. A little child who has a certain innocence to him, who knows so little of this world, in many ways we'd say, well, his thought life is clean. But as he walks through this dirty old world... His thought life gets dirtier, and some people's thought life gets dirtier than other people because of choices that they make. And so we're going to see in Romans 6 through 8, he's going to talk about our old man and our, uh, you know, our old person and, and, and how it gets bad. This week, I bought my wife some beautiful cut flowers, and they were gorgeous when I gave them to her. But they're beginning to droop this morning. They're not quite like they were. Why? Because they've been cut off from the source of life. For in the day you eat from it, dying you shall die. He died immediately in his spirit. Progressively, he was decaying. He was rotting, man, in his mind, will, and emotions. And ultimately, he will die in his body. God said to him in Genesis 3.19, You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so that's the result of what Adam did. Condemnation and death. Again, he's just introducing to us. He's going to expand it in three chapters. What's the result of Jesus' work? Justification and life. And if you think about this, it will unlock Christianity for you. When you receive Christ as your Savior, what Adam immediate lost, immediately lost, you immediately gain. You're quickened. You're made alive in your spirit. You now have a capacity to walk with God, to know God, to love God. We call it knowing the Lord, eternal life. Why? Because that transmitter, that receiver has been turned back on on the inside. And so immediately you're made alive in your spirit. Progressively, you are transformed in your soul. Paul is going to contrast in Colossians and in Romans 6 the old man with the new man. The old man referring to uh, that portion, that immaterial portion of man that has a bent towards sin. 
And he's going to show us and teach us how we need to live out of our new man, that we might be victorious believers. And this is why the parallel between five and six are so important, because if one man's act could affect the whole human race, whether it was Adam's or Christ, Christ's death can also affect you in a lot of other different ways. Apart from dealing with the penalty of sin, he's going to show us in the sixth chapter, it can also deal with the power of sin. And so... God speaks of your spirit immediately be made righteous. Your spirit can't sin, as 1 John 3, 9 indicates. Your new man cannot sin, the Bible teaches. And so in my soul, my mind, your, my will, and my emotions, as I grow in Christ, what happens? My soul catches up with my spirit, and that's what God wants. You're not paying attention, some of you. Stay with me. You, you, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to be out in outer space. I know this is not easy. And if you're a baby Christian, just hold on. You'll get something out of this message. Your soul progressively is changing. It's being renewed, your mind. And God begins as you walk in the Spirit. You are sanctified. You become more like Christ. And then ultimately, you will get a resurrected body. Turn over to the next book, to 1 Corinthians 15, for just a moment. 1 Corinthians 15. Adam died instantly in the spirit. You are made instantly alive in your spirit. Adam began to rot in his soul. You are progressively sanctified in your soul as you're made into the image of Christ. Adam ultimately died in his body. Ultimately, you will get a resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, he says, For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Look at verse 47 of that chapter. The first man, referring to Adam, is from the earth, earthly. The second man, Christ, he's from heaven. Drop down to verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. See, right now you're bearing the image of the earthly. That is the image of Adam in a decaying, aging body. But when Jesus comes, we will bear the image of the heavenly because we'll be made like him. Look at verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That's called the rapture. When you die absent from the body, present with the Lord, your body's put in the ground, but the immaterial portion, the real you, your mind, your will, your emotions goes home to be with Jesus. But he will bring with him, the scripture says, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. The dead in Christ will come out first. Your spirit from heaven, your soul will be reunited in a resurrected body in a moment's time in the twinkling of an eye. And those of us who are alive will be raised up and will meet Jesus. Jesus in the air with them. It's going to happen one of these days. One of these days, folks are going to be looking for us. They're going to say, where did all those Bible-believing fanatics go? And we'll be nowhere to be found because we'll, we'll have been raptured. They're going to come to church. Where did Jerry go? Where did Tanisha go? Where did Chris go? Where did David go? They're going to be looking for it. Some of you are going to come to church one Sunday, and you're going to say, Dr. Bennett, where did Pastor Brogy go? Just kidding, Larry. There's a contrast here between condemnation and death, justification and life. Okay, let me, let me apply it and we'll close. Three applications. Number one, Christianity has the only true explanation for sin and death. 
Christianity has the only true explanation for sin and death. We began to explore this last time. Death is not a result of an evolutionary defect. Sin entered into the realm of humanity when Adam sinned. It brought him down. It brought the whole creation down. And that's again why King David can say, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. The moment of conception in your DNA is death. And so one man brings sin into the world and right behind it on its heels comes death. And people panic over death. Look at any natural disaster and you will see the panic written all over their faces. And people try to deal with death in different ways. Some people try to convince themselves that life just ends in the grave, that that's it. But they know better because Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11 says, God has written eternity in our hearts. So most people don't say that. They, they, they know there's something beyond the grave. They just know it because God wrote that into their DNA. Some people, especially aging Americans, try to deal with death through self-sacrifice and through service. And they think somehow if I could just do more, I'll be ready when I die. But Galatians 2 says, if righteousness comes through good deeds, then Christ died for nothing. In some parts of their world, in the world, their strategy for dealing with death is to just become more meditative, more mystical. But you can't yoga your way out of death. You can't transcendental med meditate your way out of death. It is real. For the Buddhists and the Hindus, they say, well, death is not the real problem. The, the real challenge is the next life I come into, and they call it reincarnation. The Bible says it's appointed for a man to die once, not two, three, four, a hundred times, once. And after that comes the judgment. Other people are practicing cryonics. For $200,000, shortly after you die, they will take your body and they will freeze it. And there are people who are hoping that maybe as medical science progresses that they'll be able to thaw me out and fix the problem that killed me and that I will live again. Again, that's contrary to what the Bible teaches because the Bible teaches in James 2 and verse 26 that when a person dies, the spirit leaves the body. And in Luke 16, Jesus describes Lazarus, who's in Abraham's bosom or paradise or heaven, and the rich man who's in Hades or hell. And he says there's an eternal chasm between the two, never to be bridged again. Well, I meet these sometimes even naive Christians who describe their outer body experiences, mostly lost people. They say, well, I died on the operating table. You didn't die. That's lousy theology. It just shows your immaturity. You die once. Now, your heart may have stopped and they may have revived your heart, but you didn't die. But I had this experience, Pastor and there was this light, and it was magnificent and gorgeous. It was either deception, because I meet a lot of people who tell me these experiences, and I ask their theology, and they know nothing of Jesus and his cross. Wouldn't the devil like them to think everything's fine, and then he'll laugh at them for all of eternity when they spend an eternity with him in hell? It's either deception or oxygen deprivation, or they're lying or dreaming, but they didn't die. And then Christians buy these books about some guy who dies and went to heaven, somebody else who went to die and went to hell for 90 minutes. How naive is the body of Christ and untaught in the day in which we live. No, God teaches very clearly 
that there is an explanation for death and it is sin. Secondly, because Jesus Christ made a provision for all people, we can boldly say to all people that Christ loves them. Do you know what motivated the Apostle Paul as probably the greatest evangelist who ever lived? It wasn't hyper-Calvinism. It's what he spoke of in this chapter. In six verses 6 and 8, he says that Christ died for the ungodly and he died for sinners. And if you can show me someone who is not ungodly or a sinner, when God says we all are, then I can show you a person for whom Christ didn't die. But he will write, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. You can look at anyone in the eye and say, God loves you. He really does. Jesus Christ died for you. Finally, I would just say to anyone listening, Though Jesus Christ made a provision for all, does not automatically mean that all will be saved. The Bible says in Hebrews 2 and verse 9 that he tasted death for every man, but that does not mean that every man will be saved. And again, those who deal with people like me who like the church for the most, listen, limited atonement, you've got to be educated into that nonsense. Nobody plainly reading the Bible would come up with that. Somebody has to teach you that nonsense. That's why it's been a minority, minority view, but now it's an exploding view in our country. That's why I'm addressing it. But those who say that, oh, pastor, you believe his atonement was unlimited, what are you teaching, universalism? That's like saying that because medicine is available for all, that everyone will be healed. No, you have to take the medicine. In the Old Testament, the serpent was raised up in a pole, and only those who looked lived. And in the next verse, when Jesus uses that illustration, he says, for God so loved the world that whoever looks lives. As, the son, as Moses lifted up the serpent, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. So you can say to anyone, God loves you, Christ died for you. Listen, he enlightens every man. He loves every man. He convicts every man. He draws every man. But every man must make their choice. Let's bow in prayer. Now, our Father, thank you this morning for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray this day for someone listening to me, someone who is lost, someone who is uncertain, that if the trumpet of God were to sound, that they would be brought up into heaven. Oh God, help someone today in simple childlike faith to believe what Jesus said of his death and resurrection, that it was a payment for sin. Help someone today to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Our Father, for those of us who have met you by your mercy and grace, we acknowledge that it didn't begin with us, it began with you, that you opened our dead eyes up that we might see the wonder of the gospel and believe. And we give you all the praise and credit and honor for our salvation. For by you, your doing, we are in Christ Jesus today. Help us, O oh God, with compassion and love. Help us to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is within us. Give us, we pray, even this week, opportunity. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For a copy of today's study from Romans 5, verses 15 to 17, entitled, For Whom Did Jesus Die? 
Call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM25. You can also listen to it online at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or use our Search the Scriptures app for iPhones and Androids, available through the respective online markets. And when you contact us, why not show your support for this ministry by making a one-time gift or by becoming a monthly supporter? Find out more by calling 877-787-7478. Time is running out to participate in the Search the Scriptures trip to Israel, led by Dr. Brogy, May 11th through the 22nd. Because of safety protocols being observed, you have until February 11th to sign up. Get all the details online at stsisraeltour.com and take part in the trip of a lifetime. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll begin a look at super abounding grace. Join us then as we search the scriptures.